You are listening to the PhD Pod, the podcast from UCAPS, the PhD Association of the University of Copenhagen. We bring the people behind the science to the foreground. Hello and welcome everybody to this week's PhD Pod episode. We are, as always, in our great studio here in Copenhagen, and with me again in the studio is Johanna. Hi. And today's guest, Pia. Hello. Pia, maybe to get us started, what are you working with and what will you talk about today? Thank you, Sebastian. So, yes, my name is Pia and I'm an anthropologist and I did my PhD at the Department of Anthropology here at the University of Copenhagen. So I did a PhD about um, how people try to become recognized in the public uh, healthcare sector when they're sick and also how they try to become uh, recognized as citizens um, during the corona pandemic. Yeah. So you remind us of a topic that we all all too happy to forget about the corona pandemic. But epidemics and other diseases remain a quite pressing pressing topic in many places in the world. Um so your PhD thesis that you just uh defended recently, I think two months ago, less than two Congrats months ago. Congrats on that. Congratulations on this one. Had the topic missing trust and to mistrust popular responses to COVID-19 in Burkiso Faso. So you work with the healthcare, but you're not a physician. You don't treat people and cure symptoms. You're an anthropologist. What does an anthropologist do? <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, so just to start off, maybe, um, yes, you said I, I wrote about trust and missing trust. And just to specify, that was just one of the, the papers that, that I was working on as part of my PhD. But... To answer a question on what an anthropology does, or what I did at least here in this project, was very much to um, look at epidemics from the population's point of view. Um, so following them, um, interviewing people, uh, and, and getting an insight into uh, what does epidemics look like from their perspective, because that might be different from what we perceive as an epidemic on what the healthcare system perceive as an epidemic. And you didn't look at the Danish population, how they looked at uh, COVID-19, but the population in Burkina Faso. What are people in Burkina Faso actually called? Burkin Burkina Bays. Burkina Bays. Yes. Great. How do the Burkina Bays look on this and why did you study it there? So, um, to start off by why I studied there. So, my project was part of a larger research project called Emerging Epidemics, Improving Preparedness in Burkina Faso. So basically it's a project that's funded by Danida and they fund research in uh, countries that are priority to um, the Danish corporation, foreign corporation, and Burkina Faso in is one of those countries. So that explains a little bit, bit why Burkina Faso. But then also um, our project idea came very much out of the Ebola epidemic uh, in 2014, 2000 and 2014 to 2016, uh, which happened in West Africa. So the West African Ebola epidemic, because there we saw a lot of clashes between both public authorities and international interveners and the local population. So we wanted to do a project on how could you build up a preparedness or give input to a preparedness system epidemic preparedness system that would take more into account um, the needs and priorities and preferences of the local population. So you 
might uh, not have all these clashes. So you're helping the local population there or do you help health organizations working there? So who is the target audience for your research? I think our main target or those who uh, would be most interested in our research is probably um, ministries, local relevant ministries in Burkina Faso that work directly uh, in the healthcare on the healthcare system, and also um, international funders and global health in global health that work on these issues in Burkina Faso. And I find this quite interesting because when you started your PhD, there was no COVID nineteen, right? No. You started in two thousand eighteen. I started my PhD in early uh, 19, 2019. And so your plan was actually to research the Ebola outbreak, but then something else, COVID-19, took over. Yeah, you're very right. So the whole project that I was part of, we kind of planned a project where we would look at an epidemic um, emerging locally, like Ebola, and where the local population would be aware of this before the healthcare system and before the international community. So we wanted to, 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 give, in to give input sorry, to a preparedness system that could feedback in all this local knowledge of what is going on in the local community. But then COVID came as a pandemic from abroad and in Burkina Faso and in many African countries, not as an epidemic or pandemic that came from uh, China, but an epidemic that came from Europe. And this, you know, was just gave, uh, turned our project upside down or our idea upside down. So it became a whole other project than yeah. we imagined from the beginning. When was the point when you realized, okay, we need to uh, do this project on COVID-19? Was it like, I mean, I think for us, COVID kind of started or became a real issue here in spring 2020. Was it uh, during the first lockdown that you like came together in your project group and said, okay, we, we need to completely shift the focus of our project or how was this decision pro process? I think it, it, just, it just happened with the COVID pandemic. Uh, it happened a bit sudden, I guess. Also, like when, when, when Europe locked down when the first cases happened in Burkina Faso. I was on field work when that happened. And then when I, was that? Because here in Europe we got it like in March 2020. We it, started was, to feel it, it was around the same time. Um, so I think the first, the first two cases of COVID in Burkina Faso was identified March 9th. And I left Burkina Faso a few days after. So I left because of the situation in Europe, actually not the situation in Burkina Faso, because things were still calm. But what happened in Burkina Faso was that they also went into a lockdown mode, uh, as we did in Europe soon after we had done that in Europe. Um, and that was when we realized in our project, okay, it's interesting to look at this COVID pandemic, what is going on. But of course, we were restricted in how we could research it, because suddenly I was not in Burkina Faso anymore. Um, but I had a collaboration with the local assistant who was still there and who continued to the extent that we deemed that it was safe. Um, because at that time, there was so much uncertainty, uh, as you probably remember. And we're going to hear more about the way your field work did work or did not work uh, in our second part today. But I like to move a little bit about or closer to what did you find out? So how is the healthcare system in Burkina Faso 
working. Um, somewhere you write about the hierarchies in global health. Can you explain what are these hierarchies in global health? Yes. So what I mean by that is that um, healthcare and the healthcare system, Burkina Faso, is to a large extent funded by different global funders. And as we know, when different funders fund something, they also have terms and conditions for what these money should be used for. And in Burkina Faso, what we've seen recently, not just Burkina Faso, um, this goes into building up healthcare systems and um, that can... Uh, epidemic preparedness, for example, is one thing that is a priority now. Before in Burkina Faso, it's very much been malaria because that's a bit, that has been a big problem. But to go back to what I wanted to say also was that what I found in Burkina Faso during my initial fieldwork was a lot of people trying to uh, become recognized, as I said in the beginning, in the healthcare system with these various chronic conditions um, that they had for a month and for years and where they tried to get a diagnosis, effective treatment. What is treatment. an example of such a chronic decision? That's a good question because well, basically... I don't know what they suffer from, but what we do know uh, is going on in countries like Burkina Faso, but also other countries, is that chronic conditions like diabetes, uh, cardiovascular diseases, different cancers, hypertension are on the rise. We know that these are big problems in these countries, but the healthcare system doesn't have the capacities to diagnose treat them, etc. Can you explain how does the healthcare system in Burkina Faso work at all? Is there, like we know it from most places in Europe, you feel not well, you go to a doctor, you get an appointment, doctor will say like, yeah, you should get this medicine and you're going to be fine. How does it work in Burkina Faso? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big question. I will think about how I can answer it um, simply. So, The different levels of hierarchies in the healthcare system. So there's a primary uh, level where you would go to first. Um, but of course, like in Europe, if you just get sick with the flu-like symptoms or something, going to the healthcare system might not be your first choice. In Burkina Faso, if you're in rural parts of the country, there might be far to these uh, clinics. So, What means far? How, which distance are we talking about to the next doctor? Five kilometers. Uh, but I did my PhD in a peri-urban setting. So here you're actually close to the healthcare system. So people would involve the healthcare system quite fast. But of course, there are also various um, other specialists, traditional healers uh, that people would also go to. But my PhD didn't focus so much on that because we were in this urban area where... Um, biomedical healthcare facilities are available. That was what people uh, mostly went to when they were sick, if the sickness persisted for, for a little while. And now we're talking about like epidemics, right? We're not talking about the normal person that gets a small flu and then he or she gets treatment or not. We're talking about bigger, larger things. You mentioned malaria, Ebola, COVID-19. Um, or chronic conditions. Or chronic conditions. Where, we do, where you don't know, like when you're sick yourself and if you don't get a diagnosis by the healthcare system, you don't know what it is. So to say again, as an anthropologist, I'm trying to look at epidemics from 
from the population's point of view. And when they, when I talked to them about epidemics and what is epidemics for them, these chronic conditions were very much epidemics because they just continued uh, and there were large problems, right? So that's epidemics in another way. So how do people there learn about that there's an epidemic? Um, so the people we were doing research with very much learned about it through the radio. Uh, and I would say for a long time, um, during the beginning of 2019, people haven't heard about it. And it was, I think, maybe late February, many of them started to hear about that something was going on in Europe, something had been going on in China, but it was still very much far away. But then it went very fast uh, when the first cases in Burkina Faso happened. Uh, and then they heard about it. And then what was the response of the hierarchies of the healthcare system? There were imposed regulations, restrictions. How did people perceive them? How do they react to them? So let me start by saying that in the beginning, there was a lot of fear. People were afraid. And uh, and the government, Burkina Faso, acted kind of promptly. They closed down borders, like we did in Europe. Um, they installed a curfew. Uh, they uh, restricted. They, they closed down some big markets. So in Burkina Faso, when you buy food, you go to the market. Uh, the closed schools, all these kind of things. Um, and in the beginning, the population was in favor. But as time moved on, uh, and here we're talking about one or two months, and as markets remain closed, that caused food shortages, that caused rise in food prices. And here people started to um, to to uh, how can you say it? Rebel? Yeah. Be not not rebel maybe, but they, they started to be discontent with these restrictions. And also because what happened was um, generally the, the epidemic never got as serious in Burkina Faso as it did in other countries. Uh, so among the people we researched, or we did re our research um, among, they would talk about how they didn't know anybody who was sick. And they only heard about rich people being sick. They only heard about people being sick in Europe. And in Burkina Faso, rich people who had been in Europe or abroad and were flying home being sick. So to get in there, like you write somewhere in the paper that COVID was perceived as a disease of the elite. Yet on the other side, in Europe and in places in the US, often was seen that um, COVID came from places far away in the global south, and this is where diseases originate. How do you explain that both sides are blaming each other? Mm. I think it's very classic uh, with epidemics and pandemics that there is this blame. This is not something we just seen now with COVID, but we saw it with Ebola. And also, um, in my thesis, I write very much about um, the work of Paul Farmer. He's an anthropologist who's done work on HIV and AIDS. And he talks about the geography of blame. So he talks about how in the US and Haiti, the HIV pandemic and the blame there, uh, he talks about how different people blame each other. So I think blame is something very classic when we talk about pandemics and epidemics. And to talk about Burkina Faso and, and what happened there was that 
what our interlocutors felt. Um, our interlocutors were part of the poor population in Burkina Faso. And they experienced the uh, pandemic and the, the um, epidemic as causing difficult uh, economic situations in their lives. Uh, so these restrictions that were put in place made it difficult for them to make a living and, and to feed their families. And this was what they were referring to when they talked about COVID as a disease of the elite. They were talking about how the restrictions were aligned to rich people because rich people could stay home, fill the freezers, the refrigerators with food and, and survive at home, but they could not. So these were one of the things that they talked about. So do you did you have the impression that within Burkina Faso there was also different groups that related differently to these guidelines? Like based on what you just described with uh, these dichotomy with elite and the poor people, did that then also affect uh, their willingness to follow certain health guidelines? Definitely, definitely. So the majority of the population in Burkina Faso are what I would call poor, uh, but there were definitely um, uh, people who could better follow these restrictions um, than the population we uh, did the study among. And also we did it in a large urban setting Uh, where I think in the rural parts, the restrictions were not uh, affecting people so hard or they could still move around, but the restrictions were very hard in these urban areas. And did you feel that they actually um, played a role in increasing these differences between those groups as well? Um, I think it played a role in, in how people related to politicians. Uh, which is, I would say, in Burkina Faso already tense, uh, but that tension increased uh, during the pandemic. Um, but I, I'm not sure about different groups of people, and I think that all, that's also related to that I did not do field work uh, during it. So during the pandemic, so it was a, it's a little bit difficult for me to say. So I want to move on a little bit into this whole system of trust into the healthcare state and authorities because these two groups um, of people that either believe in the system or not, we also had this here in Europe and in the US. So anti-vaxxers, people that missing trust into the state, this general notion of they up there, we down here. We are familiar with these kind of things also in our culture. So can you use or translate the knowledge that you gained from the society in Burkina Faso and apply this on what we are seeing here? Yes, I definitely think so. Um, and I think one of the things that our research show is that we have to um, not just think about these dichotomies of being for or being against the restrictions, uh, epidemic restrictions, uh, because what we saw in Burkina Faso was that Many of our interlocutors, many of the people we talked to, were actually in favor to a large extent of what was being done by the government, but it just became difficult for them to follow uh, the rules because of their economic position, their social position. And I think we need to think about that also in, in Denmark or in other countries when we talk about epidemic restrictions or vaccines. Who is it who find it easy to follow rules uh, or restrictions? Uh, because... Our circumstances, our individual circumstances are all different. Uh, some people are in a better social economic position. Um, and 
some people who just have different histories also with authorities uh, that make it more easy or difficult to trust authorities. And for the future, looking ahead, how can you build this trust into authorities? So basically, um, I would say trust is built up by previous experiences with uh, authorities and that doesn't just go with healthcare uh, authorities but all kinds of authorities so so trying to um, trying to as governments uh, as social services really trying to um, to deliver what people need uh, what they what find out what their priorities are and and make public services uh, after that I think trust you come a long way with trust in that way and just to add one thing uh, one of the points we were also pointing out in one of our papers was that people really wanted to trust the government they sought out social benefits uh, during the pandemic but were again again disappointed and this is what happens and this is many of these people's histories also with the healthcare system that they're sick and they go there and they go there again and again and they're not treated, but they are sent all kinds of treated effectively, but they are sent to all kinds of levels and to do all kinds of examinations that they pay for themselves and it's expensive for them. And they're disappointed again and again because they don't get effectively cured and treated. Do you have any ideas how to resolve this tension or specifically in Burkina Faso, what could be done to enable also on the one hand the government to deliver this consistency but also help people with uh, yeah establishing the trust i, I don't have easy uh, yeah, solutions to that at all so. but um it, it's it's not an easy easy uh, question to answer but i would just try to rephrase what i said earlier also on really trying to build up public systems that really also take into account the local population. And that's not just uh, the task of the local government. That is a task of the local gov government, but also in collaboration with global funders that fund public health services in Burkina Faso, right? Um, and I think their priorities, what they put money into in the healthcare system, needs to be aligned much more uh, to the reality that people face so would you agree that when we say trust in the end needs to be earned and cannot just be forced on populations? Definitely, definitely, yeah. Great, Pia, I have many more questions on my list, but we're already running now over time and um, beautiful topic that you're having. Thanks for Thank sharing you. all your insights. I can feel there's so much more that we could go into, but that's maybe something we need to go into on the second episode once when we have you back. Yes. Maybe. Pia, thank you. Thanks. For the second half of the interview, we thought it might be interesting to talk to you a little bit more about fieldwork specifically. Like, what does it mean to do fieldwork in anthropology? How do you organize it? What kind of cultural challenges do you have? And how do you get scientific insights from it? So I'm a social data scientist. That means I spend most of my time in front of my computer. And I'm always very impressed by people that are doing 
research out there in the real wild world. Um, scary real wild world. Yes. <laughs> so my, my knowledge about what that entails is uh, close to zero. And uh, I just went to Wikipedia, basically, before we came here to Google what is actually <laughs> the definition of fieldwork. And that says it's the collection of raw data outside a laboratory, library, or workplace setting. And in anthropology, it's organized to produce a kind of writing called ethnography. So being very honest, I'm still quite unsure what that actually means. To start us off, could you maybe give a very simple explanation of what anthropologists understand under the term fieldwork and what ethnography means? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, you're right, like fieldwork is uh, what constitutes anthropology or the anthropological discipline. And uh, so basically I would say classic fieldwork is to, to go and live among a group of people that you want to research for a longer period of time. And um, in anthropology we had the founding father of fieldwork, uh, Malinowski, who went somewhere for years and stayed with people and wrote books about it. Today, of course, we don't have years to go and do fieldwork. Most people don't have that. Um, but you would then go for shorter times and, uh, and interview people, uh, follow people in the everyday endeavors, try to get a broader perspective on uh, what goes on, goes on in people's lives. For example, me, I studied... Um, how people perceive epidemics. Uh, I didn't live among these people, but I went there every day. I spent time with them in the households. I went with them to the doctor. I went with them in uh, to the healthcare system. So it's not just interviewing them because there are a lot of information you cannot always get. There are a lot of knowledge that people have that is not a lot of knowledge that is tacit that they cannot always verbalize. So it's also a lot about uh, observation, observing what is going on, and so observing encounters uh, between a doctor, for example, and the patient and what is going on there. Um, and what does it need to transform all of these observations in actually scientific insights? Because, I mean, if... If the sun's out and I say, I don't want to like work at my computer, could I just go sit on a bench and tell my supervisor, I'm sitting in the sun, but I'm actually observing people and I'm doing scientific work. What does it need to like get from observations to scientific insights? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I think the, the criteria is different, very different. What is science? So in, in anthropology or what is good research? So in anthropology, it's much more about depth, so really trying to understand a phenomenon in depth than having uh, rep something represented or representative, is that how you say it? Um, so if you want to, yeah, what can I say? Um, yeah, I don't think I answered your question very well. but No, I think that's fine. That's also, uh, I think, a very interesting insight to me at least that it's really about the depth. And I think the approach that, the more quantitative approach that I come from, it's often very about like measuring things. Mm. But I see there's uh, a lot of value in also just uh, looking at one thing from a lot of different angles and trying to really understand something very much in detail and looking what's behind those numbers mm. that I usually work with. Mm. 
But um, maybe moving on to a little bit more of uh, your specific fieldwork. So you've done uh, fieldwork in Burkina Faso, as we already heard. And I imagine this is quite a complicated endeavor on a lot of dimensions. But maybe to start with the most obvious question, how do you plan a fieldwork trip? Do you just walk up to your supervisor and be like, hey, I want to go to Burkina Faso? Or how do you go about that? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so clearly in my case, the, the whole project I was part of was Burkina Faso. So from the beginning, it was planned that I would go to Burkina Faso. But it does take a lot of preparation to to plan this, like where you're going to live, uh, working with a local research assistant, you have to hire this person. Um, in Burkina Faso, what was also more challenging is the security situation. So when I was planning for the field work, I actually wanted to do it in a rural setting that I knew already from my master thesis. But then uh, as I was planning the research, the, the security situation in Burkina Faso became uh, more severe and I could only be in, in, in Ouagadougou or close to Ouagadougou so I had to change my fieldwork site. Um, yeah, so there were many things to take into account uh, when planning this. Um, I don't know if that somehow answered, answered it but of course there, there are many practicalities also in, in planning a, a, a research Maybe on a, a side like note question, how did your family react when you told them, hey, I'm going to go to Burkina Faso, which is, may, as you just mentioned, not a very secure country? Um, they were actually okay because they, they've been used to me <laughs> going abroad before and, and also sometimes going to places that were not so secure. Um, so they were they were okay, okay with that. I think most people don't know a lot about Burkina Faso. So let's start out really with simple things. What do people speak there? Because language is the most basic thing to interact, to connect. How did you solve that problem? That's a very good question. And you're right, because I, I'm not completely sure how many different languages there are in Burkina Faso, but there are more than 56 different ethnic groups. And many of them have their own language. So in Burkina Faso, the um, official language is French, because it's uh, all the French, it's uh, all the French French colony sorry but where i was uh, and um, mo many people speak more local language and uh, and still today many women don't speak french because they've not been to school or they've not uh, they've not had a lot of years in school so that was also one of the reasons why I knew from the beginning I need to, to work with a local assistant who could help me um, with the language. Because I don't speak the local language, I can say a few things like Webale. Uh, what does it mean? <laughs> that means um, thank you. Webale? Webale. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, things like that. So I knew I had to work with a local assistant who could help me with the language. And how do you find a local assistant? So I had the help of the university that we're collaborating with. Um, and I think we we, we, uh, we applied, we put up a, a job advertisement. Uh, and then uh, one who was applying had been working before with some of the researchers in our project. And uh, yeah, and then we hired him after we had done an interview and was very qualified 
That sounds great. And, and and what's the timeline for those things? So you mentioned already, okay, it's not so straightforward to organize a field trip. So when is it that you start uh, planning such a thing? How many months does it take? And how do you figure out then, as you said, accommodation and uh, those types of uh, questions? So I think it took for me a few months to arrange uh, planning for the field work. Is but it also just something that you project. mostly do by yourself? Are you like basically getting a side job as a travel agent next to your PhD? Or? So of course, because we were a research project that, that collaborated with people, uh, with the collaborators in Burkina Faso, the university there, they could give a lot of good insights into where, where could you stay and these kind of things. So that helped a lot. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of work you have to do yourself, of course. And I think in terms of accommodation, where to stay, I found out when I was there because it's difficult to do when you are mm-hmm. when you're home. So I think I, I spent the first week or two in a guest house or hotel, and then I just found uh, accommodation when I was there. But it seems uh, like you definitely need to be some kind of a very well-organized person in order to do stuff like this. Um, do you think there's any specific skills that one needs to have as a PhD who is planning to do some field work and maybe developing countries or at least outside of Europe. Yeah, you said organized, like to be organized is always good. But I, I also think what is more important is maybe to be very flexible mm-hmm. and uh, to expect the unexpected, because when you when you have to do field work, and that can also be in Denmark, but also in other countries, you, you just know that things are not going to be the way you planned. So sometimes maybe it's good to be organized and planning what then to do when things go wrong, because they will go wrong and things will not work out as you want. And also just take things that, as they come. I think you have to be very uh, yeah, flexible and, and not afraid of sometimes just letting things, just letting the ball roll and see where it takes you. Um, because doing field work is an uncertain endeavor and you never know exactly where you will end up and how you will end there. So flexibility, I would say. Very important. Do you have an example of such an unexpected challenge or happening? <laughs> well, COVID was a very good example, True. right? Um, in my fieldwork, also what I mentioned that I couldn't do fieldwork where I wanted to in the beginning. That I I knew from the beginning when I was planning the fieldwork in Denmark that I might have to do it two places. So I was still expecting to go to that rural location I'd been before, but it was not before I was in Burkina Faso and talking to the Danish embassy in Burkina Faso about the security situation that I realized I would not be able to go. So there I had to adapt again. And sorry, to go back to COVID also, like one thing was the COVID pandemic happening, but honestly what was more challenging and what was more uncertain in the project was that we didn't know what was going on with the pandemic or what would happen. So I don't know if you can remember what you thought about the pandemic initially, but my idea was that, okay, after a month, I can go back to Burkina Faso and do field work. So what happened was that I continuously, or we continuously had to adapt my field work plan when, yeah, to the COVID situation, uh, to the restrictions there in Burkina Faso, what kind of field work could Landry do uh, Landry, sorry, my, my research assistant, if I didn't introduce him by name before. Uh, so this was something we just continuously have to had to address and had to adapt. 
So that, that definitely seems like a lot of uh, organizational challenges and uh, uh, yes, a lot of flexibility as you meant uh, as you mentioned before that you need. I imagine there's also maybe some kind of cultural challenges. So you mentioned that you're collaborating with uh, the local university a lot. And just also from my very limited personal experience, you people from different countries have different ways of communication. And that's just something that you also need to get used to or figure out to in a within a work collaboration. Was there anything that you learned or any kind of challenges in uh, having communication or collaborating with the locals? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I can think of a specific challenge at the moment. I can say some of the things that I think are important when you do it. Um, I think for me also, maybe I, I just take some of these things for granted now because I've done it so long, so it might be very <laughs> difficult for me to say specifically what are some of the challenges. But I think in the collaboration between me and Landry, my research assistant, um, it, it takes time to to get to know each other and get familiar with each other. And, uh, and I think... I for a long time took for granted that he was just very open with me about what he felt like how the how the work was going and what we should how we should do things. Uh, where I found out after we did a debrief interview, um, I think when we had collaborated uh, for half of the time, uh, where he became more honest about some things. Where he, for example, thought that that some of the questions I'd asked a person doing an interview were a little bit, um, how can you say, were not very culturally appropriate because they were too sensitive. So I think I was asking the person about his personal life or his relationship to family members or something. And, and Adri, my research assistant, thought that these questions were too personal. Um, so just to say that um, I think in these collaborations it's just very important to be very open and uh, and and try to um, yeah to promote openness um, and the reason why he had not been open to me earlier on I think was he needed time to to get to know me and in the beginning clearly we are also in a in a in a employee employer relationship and there are some power differentials there. And I think for him, it also took time to understand that he could actually be open and also give critical input to to how we should do the work. Uh, and and clearly, in the beginning, he was fearing being too open or too cri critical of my approach because it was also a job for him that he didn't want to lose. Um, so I think in these collaborations, you also need to think about that they take time. It takes time to to get to know each other and, and to trust for trust to be built. That was a very long answer. <laughs> but but a very good answer. So I think that was very interesting to hear. But to maybe end on a bit of a positive note, what was the most surprising positive experience that you had during your time in Burkina Faso? I think the the most positive thing in the end was the collaboration I had with Landry, my research assistant, and uh, it was a collaboration that I guess I had imagined would be doing the fieldwork, uh, but then 
continued uh, in the analysis process and in the writing. Uh, he was uh, co-authored two of the papers in the dissertation, and that was a very positive experience for me um, because it made the whole work a lot less lonely. And I think many PhD feel like the PhD is a very, very lonely process. And um, and I don't think if we had not had the pandemic, I'm not completely sure that we would have had this close collaboration. But because we had the pandemic and I was not in Burkina Faso during the COVID pandemic, I just became very dependent also on his input to the analysis and to the to the writing process of it. Uh, so that was a very positive thing. Well, that uh, yes, sounds like a very interesting relationship. And thanks a lot for sharing your insights about fieldwork. I think that was super interesting. And I definitely feel like uh, I have a little bit more knowledge now about how research in the uh, wild real world works. So thanks a lot for sharing this with us today. Welcome. Yes, and with this, I also think we should move on to our lightning round. We have prepared 10 quick questions for you to get you to know you a little bit better. Um, Johanna, why don't you start us off with the first one? Yes, happy to do so. Um, so what is something that everybody should know about your topic? <laughs> there are something, too many things. Something to know. everybody should know about my topic. Uh, no, you Johanna. can ask again, but I might answer a little bit differently. Mm. Yeah, uh, whatever works for you. Okay, so something that everybody should know about your topic. I'll answer a little bit differently. I will say something everybody should know about my my PhD or the PhD work, and uh, I would say that it's built very much upon collaboration and collaboration with my research assistant. Great. Then what advice do you give yourself at the beginning of your PhD? To not be so afraid of what the end product will be and uh, and then allow yourself sometimes just to, to go with the flow and, and accept that things will work out in the end. What do you do to be productive? I talk about my work with colleagues because sometimes when I think I'm in a stall uh, it doesn't help for me to read or, or write so I need to talk to my colleagues about what I'm working on. On the day I defended my PhD I did not sleep at all the night before and uh, I prepared my my presentation too many times. What's the worst job you ever had? There was a um, Not as a telephone seller, but what you say, a telephone interviewer. That was the worst job I ever had. And then what is your dream job? So I think I already had my dream job with MSF, working as a, an anthropologist. MSF? Doctors Without Borders, sorry. Yeah. That sounds great. Uh, but what's your exit plan if your career doesn't work out? I well, my career will not it will not work out like that because that was my dream job. But I always also realized that um, I don't want to continue like that forever because uh, that was dream job. But my social life or personal life <laughs> was non-existent. So um, when that doesn't work out, I'll try to to perhaps get a job outside academia uh, with a bit more work 
work-life balance. So what's one thing you're proud of? My collaboration with my research assistant during the pandemic. And one thing that went catastrophically wrong. COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, pandemic. That's uh, Thank you, Sebastian. <laughs> that went, yeah, I don't know. Then let's take the last one simply. A book you recommend to everybody. I have the book, but the, the, the issue is I'm not sure I remember what it's called. Can I Google it? Yeah. yeah. I found it. Good. Have you found the title of the book? Yes. Good. Then let me ask you a following question again. A book you recommend everybody to read. That's a book by Susan White, professor of anthropology, and it's called Question is Questioning Misfortune. So you also send us off with a very specific anthropology book. Great that you get the time to read this. Pia, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, neither I nor Johanna exhausted the questions we had to you, but we only have so much time. Um, very interesting topic. Johanna, what did you learn today about anthropology in Burkina Faso? Well, I definitely learned that uh, people have very different opinions about who is to blame for epidemics or certain health situations, that this is also much more uh, uh, not only a health issue, but a social issue, which is very much related to existing hierarchies within a society, and that we need collaboration both of Western funders, but also very much... Uh, take into account the local population in building up health systems that actually enable people to trust in the health system because that's, uh, as I took it from today, basically the most important part to actually deal uh, with pandemics in a, in a yeah, sophisticated or like well-prepared way. Wow, you learned a lot there. Yeah, I'm half an anthropologist already now. Um, but uh, what about you? Can Are you prepared for your next field work trip? Well, like luckily my work also brought me out on field a couple of times, but I don't deal with people. I deal with soil. That's a bit easier to handle, I think. But I learned today that Wabele means thank you on Moray. Is this right? Well, actually, sorry, I, I made a mistake earlier. <laughs> That's in... Uh, Webale is in Luganda, uh, local language in Uganda. But uh, in uh, More, in Burkina Faso, you would say uh, Bakawusko. Bakawusko. So Bakawusko means thank you in More. And then we also learned that in fieldwork, you don't only have a plan A, B and C, but maybe also a plan Q or R. Yes, definitely. Well, I think we both had some great learnings today and that's a good note uh, to close this. Thank you so much for coming here. It was a pleasure having you and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day and everybody out there as well. This was PhD Pod, the UCAPS podcast. If you have any questions, comments or would like to be our next guest, write to us on UCAPS at KUDK. And please like, follow and subscribe to our channels. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The PhD pod is supported by the University of Copenhagen. Your hosts today were Johanna Einsiedler and Sebastian Zastrushny. Production is by Penelle Jensen and Jennifer Musser. Editing, Simon Owens. <laughs> <laughs>